Hey, welcome to the Central Belfast podcast. Today we're reading from John 13, verses 31 to 38, and this is the word of the Lord. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we thank God for his word, for how it speaks to us today. The Bible's full of the most amazing, incredible writing, right? Story, narrative, all of that, from Old Testament characters and the way that it follows the people of God on their journey to the documentation of the books of the law, to prophetic content, letters, and a collection of songs and poetry as creative, beautiful, and profound as any that have ever been written. It's, it's incredible, really, isn't it? But I'm drawn to wonder and fascinated on a human level at the events that we're reading today and the ones that will come just after, right? Just, just as a human being for a second, okay? As a close companion of Jesus, how on earth would it have been to have been sitting in that room that evening? To listen as Jesus reveals his betrayer, hear what he has to say and watch on in horror as the cross unfolds before you. It can be so easy at times to read the Bible and the biblical narrative and yet remove ourselves from it as if these weren't real, normal human beings like us experiencing the events that we're reading. And in some ways it could be kind of easy to read John 13, 18 to 30, which are the events just right before the ones in today's reading. Like they're the events of an episode of Poirot, right? Like Jesus is going to get to the bottom of it and eventually we're all going to see the great big reveal, right? Except that doesn't quite capture it, does it? Jesus has just washed their feet, and then he points out that he's going to be betrayed by one of his own, Judas, and then he leaves. I mean, just imagine how it would have felt if you're John, whose account we're reading today. He's the disciple Jesus loved, and he's just got the most horrifying news of his life. Judas, like, we've been with him every day for the last three years, and now this, you think you know somebody, and he would have been broken, angry, devastated, his head I'm sure would have been spinning. And yet this is the context for our passage today, right? This is the start of a whole series of content over the next three to four chapters known as the farewell discourse before he prays for the disciples and then eventually he's arrested in chapter 18. First, the trauma of the news of the betrayal and now this. And yet this is the moment. Jesus says now because the moment Judas walks out that door is the moment that he knows he's on his way to the cross. The wheels are in motion. The destination is fixed. And soon the cross will be coming into view for everyone to see. But not before he gives them his final instructions. And this was not an uncommon thing, as it was well documented in Jewish literature that closing remarks and instruction were a common thing when we're talking about the death of an important person, right? Normally, they followed that someone would outline what they expected of their sons or their people, and usually what they think they should do differently from them due to their own regrets from their life. But Jesus didn't have any regrets. 
His final words were words to live by. They were words of life. Jesus is on his way to one of the most horrific destinations that humanity has ever created. And now is the moment that he chooses to share some of the most intimate, important, tender, and beautiful words that he ever spoke. Jesus challenges, he comforts, he points them on their way, he promises the Spirit, and that their grief will turn to joy, all with the cross looming large, as I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, is what it said in John's Gospel. On his way to the cross, take heart, I have overcome the world. It feels like another cryptic message from the Messiah. They now knew was bound to the way of the cross, and yet we know that that was not the end. The message of the resurrection through this passage in John is one of ministry. Because the word for ministry really just means service. Jesus is telling them what service looks like, what ministry looks like. And in the resurrected life, it looks like two things, glory and love. The first of those is glory. I don't know about you, but when I was 16 or 17 years old, I could not wait to get my first job. I mean, we all reached that point where we had to stop fleecing grandparents as our primary source of income, right? Uh, When you reach that point, you realize it's probably time to head out and start work. And I couldn't wait for it. I was chucking my CVs in left, right, and center. And eventually, I got my big break as I got my first job in Toys R Us. I was living the dream. So I was getting ready to start. I was really excited about it. I mean, it was my first job. Imagine the glory of your first job. I go in, sign in. It was a Christmas job. So it was real busy, lots of people around the shop and signing in was exciting enough as it was and I headed out onto the floor and it was a kind of normal first day. I was shadowing our assistant manager and all was going well, right? The whole store is buzzing. I'm having a good time. It's going great until his little walkie-talkie gets a call and we get called to aisle six. So we rush over to aisle six. When we get there, we find that some little girl had boked everywhere right so you already know how i feel about sickness and then came the fateful words right david i'm gonna have to go and locate a member of the caretaking staff to clean this up you're gonna have to stand over this as it's a slip hazard and off he went and he never returned right he just didn't come back so there i was on my first day of work essentially a glorified caution wet floor cone for the next several hours with nothing but a bunch of toys for company and the smell of a kid's boke it was anything but the glorious first day in work that i had imagined turned out to be nothing like what i expected And the first couple of verses of our passage today are taken up with this notion of glory. This is what it says. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. The trouble is, it's not the sort of glory that we'd expect, right? This is the moment Judas has left to go and conspire to have Jesus killed. And it's now clear that the cross is the eventual destination for Jesus. And in yet another upside down of the kingdom and the way of Jesus, glory means the cross. Glory means suffering. Glory means sacrifice. It's glory. But it's not what we or anyone else expected. The thing is, this is not the first time Jesus has brought a whole other meaning to a word that was on people's lips. He'd already done the same with the word Messiah, right? Where God's people were waiting for a conqueror with military might who would shatter oppressive powers forever. And Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting for, but he came and he went to the cross, not a palace. He didn't just shatter oppressive powers. He shattered the powers of sin and death. 
Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he used the term son of man for himself. This term is lifted from what the prophet Daniel had seen in a vision years before. This is what it says in Daniel 7. In my vision that night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When you read that and you hear words like that, you're like, yes, that sounds like glory. I get it, except we don't. Jesus' whole life subverted this vision of glory, this picture of the Son of Man, by showing us that it really looks like sacrifice. It really looks like suffering. It looks like service. Now the Son of Man is glorified. That glory is the cross. And in some ways, we can kind of understand it or make parallels to it in our world. In Forrest Gump, Forrest's best friend, Lieutenant Dan, spends much of the start of his relationship with Forrest lamenting the fact that he was meant to die on that battlefield and not get carried to safety. Why? Because he was from a long line of men who died in battle, and there was glory in a death like that, glory that Forrest had just robbed him of. They shall not grow old as we that are left Grow old, age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. There's glory that goes to those who pay the highest price. And Jesus is saying that the one to whom belongs the highest praise, the one with authority, glory, and power, the one with whom one day every knee will bow before carries that glory through incredible sacrifice. Ultimate glory came through, comes through ultimate sacrifice. And the thing about that glory is that it extended beyond Jesus himself. That's what the series of statements about glory in verse 31 and 32, uh, they're essentially saying this, right? Jesus' ultimate sacrifice is ultimately glorious. Secondly, God is glorified in Jesus' obedience to the cross. Thirdly, God is glorified himself because of the cross, because he never wanted a people through impressive power or feats. That would just cause people to follow out of fear or admiration. It was love he came with and love he came for, and the cross achieved it by demonstrating for all the world to see his great love for us. And finally, Jesus is glorified by God the Father in the resurrection, ascension, and one day when he comes back again. The short answer is the message interpretation. If you want to skip all of that stuff, the short answer is glory all round. And you might be sat today thinking, what on earth does that have to do with me? Here's the thing. Life in light of the resurrection is one where we're called to partner in God's restorative, renewing, see I make all things new mission in the world, right? But what does that mission look like? This is what it says in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a serving mission. It's a ministry mission, and that's the only type of mission that will truly change the world. You know, we spend so much of our time trying to figure out what we are to do and be and become in this life, trying to connect ourselves to purpose and leverage that what we give ourselves to actually means something in this life. Jesus had all the resource in the world, and yet what was his purpose? His purpose was service. His purpose was sacrifice at the cross. What if your purpose was found in sacrificial serving? I watched 
my parents as they turned into carers for my granddad when his health deteriorated over time. And it was hard, right? It was hard for me to watch, and it was harder tenfold for them to be there for him, eventually largely doing everything for him. But, you know, they weren't doing something else. Serving Granda like that wasn't some sort of bolt-on or new thing. It was sonship and daughtership. Serving my Granda in new ways in a different season. Similarly, parenting L isn't just the new experiences together and teaching her manners or whatever else, you know, all the cool stuff, the milestones. Being her dad is as much tucking her in at night and changing nappies as anything else. Serving is the purpose. We look so hard for meaning. And here it is, right at the start of some of the greatest words Jesus ever spoke. Serve. Give yourself selflessly, sacrificially for others in the service of Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. Jean Vanier was an absolutely incredible man, monk, writer, theologian, founder of large communities where people with disabilities, right, rejected and marginalized by the world who bangs on so continuously about inclusion and equality. It's people like him who took them in, truly set them into family, truly loved them, took them to heart. He died just last week. And amongst the many profound things that he wrote is this gem. The world is upside down. The gospel is the world right side up. It's us who has glory upside down. It's the world that's got glory upside down. Glory isn't grandeur. Glory is giving. The resurrected life means glory. But secondly, the resurrected life means love. It means love. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation with someone who just loves to up the ante, right? You know, you kick a ball and they're like, oh, I could kick the ball over those mountains, right? They like, and they immediately lift the ante above where you are, sometimes ridiculously so, right? I mean, like take relationships, for example. We all have that friend who loves a DTR conversation. If you don't know what a DTR is, you're lucky because you've never been subjected to one. DTR is define that relationship, right? Now, the person who has this conversation conversation is usually female. I'm sorry, sorry. I'm being entirely sexist here, right? Uh, Usually it results in the standard male response, which is to run away as fast as it's possible to get away, right? At one stage when I was in uni, I was was single. I was coming back uh, from serving on a youth team. And a female friend of ours had been driving some of us back. And uh, there was sort of three or four of us in the car. And gradually she dropped each one of them off. And eventually it was just me and her left alone in the car. That's right. You know where this is going. And we were just chatting everything was fine or so I thought next thing she pulls over into a bus stop and those words come out of her mouth so what's really going on here and I'm like I don't know you've just pulled into a bus stop and she's like no 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 no. I mean us I mean us now something in me died inside instantaneously and uh, you quickly hope that this is the moment that you're swallowed up by the ground all of a sudden the rapture seems like a fairly attractive option right either way you just got to get out of the car as quickly as you possibly can right it ups the ante way 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 too soon and when it comes to love jesus just upped the ante this is what he says a new command i give you love one another As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. 
Jesus wanted his followers to love in a new kind of way. Up until now, the whole world knew that they were his followers. Why? Because they were following him around, right? Wherever Jesus was, they were too. It was obvious, but now he's leaving. And the world was meant to know by how they loved one another. The thing is, love was always a high bar for the people of God. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it says this, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving others was patterned on how we love ourselves. But this, this is something else entirely. Jesus has just upped the ante. Because the standard was now how Jesus had loved them. And this was a massively high bar because Jesus had demonstrated love so perfectly, so selflessly, so sacrificially, but also so understandingly, right? I mean, you never really know someone until you spend lots of time with them, do you? I mean, you're in the office, you meet this person, you're getting on great guns, you think they're the coolest person ever, right? Man crush, all of that sort of stuff. And then eventually you go away, like on a trip, or you go to see a football match, you do whatever, you go away with them for a couple of days, and then you find out all their worst habits. Like they're one of those people that bites their fingernails and they spit them out, or they don't tidy up after themselves, or they don't agree that film, are just better when they're on live TV than they are on DVD or, you know, they're a channel-hopping maniac. You see them at their worst. We hear this phrase all the time, love is blind. But the one thing that love can never be is blind. Love can be a lot of things, but it can't be blind. Blind love only ends in disillusionment when you find out that people aren't as good as you think they are. But real love... Real love is wide-eyed, choosing to love even when we see the worst in people. Jesus' heart was big enough to love the disciples at their worst, big enough to love us as we are. He loved selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, but also he loved so forgivingly too. This is what William Barclay says. Their leader was to deny him. They were all to forsake him in his hour of need. They never really understood him. They were blind and insensitive, slow to learn and lacking in understanding. In the end, they were miserable cards, but Jesus held nothing against them. There was no failure which he could not forgive. They would all let him down, every single one of them. And yet, what does he call them? Dear children. He loved them. He loved them. Do you know everything withers and dies in a context of unforgiveness. I was sitting in an Alpha course a number of years ago and one of our guests articulated when we got to the week on the cross and we were talking about forgiveness and all of that sort of stuff, she began to share that something had happened in her life and uh, there had been a man involved and, and the words came out of her mouth and for that reason, I will never forgive him. And you know something, her whole life, Since that day, since she'd chosen that posture, her whole life bore the hallmarks of someone who had chosen to never forgive. Everything withers and dies in that context. Maybe Jesus' abundant, astonishing forgiveness is one of the reasons why everyone around Jesus seems to come to life. I don't know. But this wasn't just love that upped the ante. It was a new command, right? It wasn't just a a greater love. It was a completely new command. New because the world had just never seen a love like this before. God had never manifest his love like this before. The cross changed everything. It changed the face of love itself. This is a new standard. And Jesus is calling us to love like this. It seems impossible, doesn't it? It seems impossible. 
This is not about simulation or imitation. This is about manifestation because we ourselves experience the love, the sacrificial, selfless, never known a love like this before love. And now we have invited Jesus to dwell in us by his spirit. That same love abides in us and us in it. And put simply, we aren't just copying or simulating that love when we love others in the way Jesus did. We are manifesting it. We are bringing that love to life in this earth. That's exactly what Jean Vanier's life did. It manifested the love of heaven on earth. Selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, forgivingly. Glory and love. But then there was Peter. The one who at the start of this whole thing was leaning back, reclining, lying back on Jesus is what the passage tells us. And then this is what it says. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Peter answered. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It's this moment of brutal reality and incredible hope. Peter, like so many of us, greatly underestimates his own weakness, but Jesus didn't. We find it so easy to underestimate just how weak we really are. But Jesus doesn't. He believed he could be strong and follow Jesus wherever wherever the road led. But But when things became really hard, I mean really hard, he denied he even knew him. And that's part of the miracle of life in light of the resurrection, isn't it? Love like this sees us as we are sees what we are, all the failure and the flaws, and yet it doesn't flinch, it doesn't walk away, it doesn't brush it under the rug or proclaim it as fake news. It sees us for what we are. But even more incredibly, when Jesus looks at us, he sees us as we will be. How do I know? This is what it said in the passage. Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter, I know you'll let me down. Before this day is out, you'll deny that you even knew me, but one day your faith will lead you home. That's what the resurrected life means, that we get caught up in the way of one who knows who we are, but sees us as we will be. Sees the rock in the card, the strength in the weakness. Sees the courage when all you feel is afraid. The generosity in your most selfish moments doesn't get transfixed on the things that loom largest or are right up ahead of us, but sees the person, the love that we are becoming and one day will be at the end. That's glory. That's love. That's life and ministry in light of the resurrection.